Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining the We Don't Play podcast show today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Anytime, anytime, man. You know, one of the major things I I, I love talking about is finances, which is a big topic everywhere, anywhere you go in the world. You know, (laughs) (laughs) so breaking it down for us today would be such an honor and a pleasure and definitely a privilege because there are some questions that people ask about finances that we don't know how to deal with it, like credit, you know, debit, should I own one? Should I be having one in the first place? So we're going to tackle all those things. Um, But right before we do, I love people to just get to know who you are. Just give us a brief background history of how you even got started into all this and, you know, what led you to that point where you were able to become a financial expert and help other people become financially savvy. Mm. Well, at nine years old, um, I asked my dad if he could buy me some school clothes. And those school clothes were Isaac Lacoste, Polo Ralph Lauren, Adidas sneakers, all the designer stuff. Because every year we used to go to uh, like a discount store and buy our school clothes. Mm. But all the kids in my school were dressed in all these different brand names. I said, Dad, I gotta really up my game here. I'm gonna be nine years old. I need to wear something nice. He's like, Well, it's not our budget. So, uh, but I have an idea. And I'm like, Okay. He said, Start a business. <laughs> so I'm thinking he wants to like, he wants me to sell lemonade. But I grew up on a farm and we had surplus tomatoes and cucumbers and he thought we should sell those. So I had a farmstead for like four years um, selling to cucumbers and tomatoes. First it was on a road stand and then we sold uh, bushels of tomato and cucumbers to specialty food stores. Um, and I guess you would call that scaling, if you will. But that's my first real exposure to business, to handling money, and being able to sell your product at nine years old. And since then, uh, I've been working my whole life, different jobs, different places, uh, but one of the rewards of working in the farm stand is that I was able to pay for a study abroad to Spain. I bought my first car in my junior year in high school, and then I paid for my first semester's tuition at the University of Maryland, from the farm stand. Um, and i just always been in the business. I went to New York Stock Exchange in my senior year in high school, and that was really, that's that's really the time where I said, okay, I wanna do something in finance for a living. Um, and I, so I, I toured around real estate a little bit, but I actually ended up in venture capital, investment banking, I did that for a few, finance and business affairs. That was fun. And then I went over to UBS to Merrill Lynch and did wealth management until I started my own business, Evanson Company, and it's going to be 10 years next year. So um, I've been in finance my whole life, um, for the most part, different level, different parts of finance, corporate side, banking side, investing side. Um, you know, my first business at nine years old, um, you know, it's amazing how much I've learned in retrospect just from that experience alone. And I think that's where it all started for me. Wow. Um, and, uh, and honestly, even though I was in business, 
nobody ever actually taught me how to manage money or balance a checkbook or anything like that, which I th thought was odd. They don't even teach you that in school. So I had to learn all of these things on my own through college and as a young adult. And, um, and I also tell, teach people how to do the same. You know, um, paying off for debt and all kinds of stuff. And weathering through recessions, which I've been through many as an individual, uh, like an employee working somewhere and as a business owner. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of where I am with finance. I know a lot about the economy and how money works and consumer behavior. And so that's been a real asset for me in my business for the last 10 years. Wow. You know, as you mentioned this, before I even say this, congratulations on your 10 years. Um, yeah, thank you. That's a big milestone. Not many businesses get to celebrate 10 years in business as a business um, because that's a huge sure. achievement, meaning that you do have, you know, balances carrying forward. You do have, and you know, payments that are coming in. You know, people are connecting with you and your business is growing. And, you know, if you didn't start at nine years old, if that that zeal, if that, you know, idea didn't come, do you think you would have still started a business or it wasn't like, how would you have mapped it out? I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but if you think about it, looking back, what would those decisions you'd have made if you didn't have that business in that time? Wow. I don't know. At nine years old, I didn't have a lot of options. I mean, I was too young to go to work. And it definitely would have worked if I, if I could. Um, you know, I, I think my motivation was really, it's a good question. I, I mean, the motivation behind the business wasn't really about the business per se. It was really, if, I, if I'm really being honest, I really wanted to fit in at school. And I knew that I had to have money to do that. Well, I needed to have the right school clothes uh, and I needed money to buy them. So that was my main motivation at nine. But if I wasn't doing the farm stand, um, to be honest with you, <laughs> I really love writing and photography. And that was something I also did when I was that age. Um, you know, but when you're nine years old and you tell somebody, like your parents or a teacher, oh, I want to be a writer, I want to be a photographer, they tell you, you know. You're not gonna make any money, you're gonna struggle your whole life, da, da, da. you know, but then, you know, so I was kind of discouraged from pursuing those passions as a business, which is, I would say, a, the reason why I went into finance, because I wanted to make money and I wanted to be successful and I didn't want to struggle. Um, but, you know, I've always been really creative. Um, you know, even when I do uh, my posts on LinkedIn, I do a lot of writing. And I've actually written three books I haven't published yet. <laughs> wow. So just in the last, and this is since March 2021. Um, yeah, so I, so I still do, at least recently, I've gotten back in touch with writing. And I'm hoping to make that a big part of my business for the next 10 years. We'll see. Mm, so. I love that. And you know, as you said, 10 years, what came to mind is all these big companies that we always talk about, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, they build their business plans on, on a decade ba basis. And we hear about it, but we don't apply it. Do you think there's a reason why we don't map out a 10-year plan for our businesses and more so stick with the six months? You know what it is? Um, 
the thing is that we don't do a good job individually in checking in with ourselves and holding ourselves accountable like a big company. You know, in a big company, they can set those plans and they have uh, the infrastructure in place to sort of hold people accountable. There, there are ways to measure the success to see if you're on the right track or if you're on target to meet certain projections. So you have a lot of that built into an infrastructure of a, of a company that sets those kind of goals. But for us as individuals and families, we don't really do it that well. I mean, maybe uh, married couples, um, you know, they'll get together once a week and they check in and they try to, you know, see where they are and all that good stuff. But um, I think you've seen that more often with married couples, but for individuals, we don't really do a good job in, you know, sort of holding ourselves accountable. Also, we don't, and the only way to do that is to talk to somebody about money. And that's not really a subject that people are comfortable talking about with a friend, you know, that's why they hire professionals, why they talk to me, you know, because they know they need somebody that can hold them accountable. And when I say hold them accountable, I mean, you know, if you, you know, if, if someone sets a goal for themselves, um, they're going to have to give someone permission to say, hey, my goal is to be debt free by the end of December 2022. And it is now June. Can you can we check in at the end of August and I can tell you where I'm at, you know, and then let's say I'm not on target. You know, I would want that advisor or somebody to say, well, you know, there's something else. you could do X, you could do Y. There's something, you know, whatever, whatever advice that you can give someone to sort of help them along the way. And obviously that includes like, so what happened? Why did you, why did you fall short? What, you know, did an unexpected payment come up? And you find out there might be a bad habit that they have, like for shopping or whatever. Or, you know, there are people who have large grocery bills and they love to buy food and cook and, you know, and some, uh, there's a lot of also, what do you call it? A lot of habits, uh, coping habits that we do when we have money to cope with stress. Now, obviously, there are some bad ones too. You know, you can there's there's drug use, you know, or abuse of substances, all kinds of stuff like that. But um, but there's also like grocery shopping, uh, clothes shopping. There are people who love to travel and look on the credit card debt so they can get away. To them, that's another coping mechanism. And there's nothing wrong with obviously buying groceries and travel. Um, and there's nothing wrong with buying clothes. But sometimes, you know, when you have someone in your life that can help you hold you accountable, they can identify whether you are overboard in certain areas. I mean, you have to tone it down. You know, so that's what I think is missing. I think if individuals would welcome being held accountable to someone that they trust, I think that people would get their goals met um, much quicker or more effectively too. I think so too. Um, when you mentioned traveling, something came to mind as well. Uh, a very good friend of mine told me this and he does this as well when he travels. He spends all his expenses are billed on a credit card and not a debit card some people do the opposite 
So what are the benefits of, I mean, everyone knows the benefits of credit cards, but when you think about expenses and long-term effects, especially when you have cashbacks and rewards, how does that play a role into your budgeting when somebody is really trying to figure out, okay, I have this amount of time to spend this money. I know I have to spend my credit utilization, which is 30%, but I can really max it out and still pay it all mm-hmm. back before the bureaus, you know, check it. How does someone plan that so they are not one day late or five days early? Mm. Well, auto deduct is really good. Um, you kind of set it, forget it, and then let the credit card companies pull the money out. Um, you could do it that way. You could also do a, what's called a moratorium on yourself, you know, where you say, okay, I maxed out my credit card debt. So when I pay it down, I'm not going to use it for six months. We're not going to use it for three months. Or you decide I'm only going to use it for travel. Now, I actually have a client who is a model and she has an American Express card that she pays off every month. But here's the cool part. She racks up those reward points on American Express and then she takes them and she travels around the world with her friends pretty much for free. And when she gets hired to do jobs, she the what, what they do is that she pays for her expenses to go on the photo shoots, wherever they are in the world, she pays for it. And then they reimburse her so that she can get the reward points when she pays it off. So not only are they paying, not only are they reimbursing her for her travel, they're also paying for American Express card so she can get more travel rewards. Because that's her thing, she loves to travel. Whenever we speak, she's somewhere around the world and uh, never know where she is. But she's using those reward points, and there I've never seen so many reward points in my life. But um, I, I think if you have a credit card that has reward points, they also help to keep your debt down. I know there also uses a hook to get you to use the card, but American Express has a good rewards program. Amazon through Chase has a good credit card rewards program. You can go on Amazon and use the reward points to buy stuff. And, you know, if you're on Amazon all the time, um, you'll find yourself, you know, using your reward points to buy stuff without actually using your credit card. So I think those are really cool ways to use, utilize debt. Uh, But that takes discipline. You just have to decide, okay, I'm only going to use credit card for travel. I'm only going to use credit card if I can pay it off all at once. and you know, and there are emergencies. Don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, people sometimes have to use their credit card when they're when they don't have any other means, and they have no intention to pay it back in a month. You know, those things do happen, but they should happen very rare. Mm. They should happen very rare. Now, I have a specific question when it comes to credit cards. When you pay off a credit card, and then you get charged a credit, actually you're debited. Let me put it that way a purchase it's called like an interest purchase debit how do you avoid those kind of bills like because you let's say you had a a ten thousand dollar credit line or credit limit and then you pay off your 30 percent. so of course now you have a good amount to spend but the company charges you that interest that you didn't plan to when they say oh we listed as purchases is there a way to avoid something like that because i'm just asking for the people 
No, not really. <laughs> you see? <laughs> you know what? I mean, if you... And this is for debit cards or credit cards? Credit cards. Yeah, credit card companies are the worst. At the end of the day, they are the worst things to use. And you should avoid them as much as possible. But the reality is... Um, if you're if they're managed properly, they can really work for you. But the thing is, is that the interest rates are really high. The charges are high. Um, you know, you can probably get certain things waived from a credit card company from time to time if you're a loyal customer for ten years, something like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I know that during COVID they did. Re rebate some of those interest charges and even they waive late fees for people uh, but that's not normal they're pretty cutthroat they, some you know credit cards charges high I mean I've seen credit cards charging as high as 35% interest it's crazy um, you know so if you do get a, if someone does get a credit card I would say try to get one that's a rate that's Low. I mean, you can get credit card for as low as 12, 12% uh, APY interest. Um, and there are ones that charge even less, but you have to pay an annual fee. That could be hefty. Like American Express, they charge an annual fee. Um, you know, and there's no interest if you pay uh, at all in 30 days. There's really no interest depending on the card. Um, but, you know, there's not a lot of credit card companies aren't, aren't known for their compassion. But <laughs> it's like uh, you really have to manage it well um, if you're going to have a credit card. And, and, if you, and if you can, if you have max balances on a credit card with a high interest, you could also do what's called a zero interest transfer to another card. That always buy you six months to work out a plan to start paying off the credit card without having to incur interest for six months. If you can pay it off for six months, but you can do the best you can in six months. That's better than nothing. Because um, otherwise, there's no other, there's really no recourse for credit card companies. They're, they're, they're pretty ruthless. That is true. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. You know, one of the questions I also wanted to ask too when it comes to finances is, the principle of paying yourself because I'm sure some people have read you know the richest man in Babylon and it talks about you know paying yourself first and you know making sure that those payments even if it's 10% 15% 20% you have that paid but the catch is like a it's like a catch 22 because if you pay yourself let's say 10% of your monthly income right most times people put that into a savings but other people put it into an investment fund or into a mutual fund. Now, that paying yourself part is more like investing in yourself. So how does someone decide, okay, I'm going to pay myself 10%, not that I'm paying myself to spend it, but where can I place it? How would I put it in a bank that's going to give me an interest rate of 0.06% or put it into an actual investment fund that I can get maybe 4% APY plus? How does someone make that decision with a savvy long-term plan mindset? Mm. Well, so long-term, uh, you absolutely want to invest your money. 
and I'm not crazy about mutual funds. Mutual funds have a lot of fees in them, mm -hmm. and they don't really perform that well, actually. Um, an ETF performs better than a mutual fund, to be honest with you. Yeah. But I'm not a fan of ETFs either. <laughs> okay. The S&P 500 index has been used as sort of like the standard for investing, especially if you're if you're starting out. I think that's a good idea. But the S&P 500 index, um, when it comes to investing, you want to make sure that when you're investing, that you're investing at what's called your risk tolerance. You want to know what kind of risk appetite you have. And the S&P 500 index can be pretty rough and pretty volatile. I mean, you're better off investing in a company that you believe in than the S&P 500 index. Because think about it. They say the S&P 500 index is diversified because there's 500 companies in it. However, they're not, they're indexed based on their trading volume. They're not indexed based on any sort of fundamental analysis of their performance as a company, their ability to pay dividends, none of that stuff. So you're not really getting diversi diversification that works for you. You're just getting the index. I think it's better to own stock in one company and just keep investing in it. Like for example, uh, Apple. Apple Computer back in 2008 was $19 a share. So if you took $100 a month, you would own five shares of Apple every single month. And it remained at $19 a share for a good, I don't know, let's say a good 16 months or so. I mean, by then, uh, you've got about $1,600 worth of share in Apple at $19 a share. If you just if you just stopped right there and decided to put your money somewhere else, your Apple shares today would be worth four times that. But if you kept going for 10 years, you'd have six, you'd have almost seven figures just in Apple stock, you know? And then Apple in the last five years started paying dividends. So now you're getting part of the profits on that stock. And that's a company that everybody believes in because they use the product. It's a good company. Um, you know, you mentioned them earlier in, in, you know, in the broadcast that, you know, they have their, their infrastructure is sound and they do interesting things um, like 10-year projections. So, I mean, so it's a company that most people admire because they consume the product. And in fact, Apple is the actually the heaviest traded stock on the stock market and it has the largest uh, ownership among individuals which they call Main Street investors so the stock doesn't really move around that much even during a recession even during a big market downturn the stock doesn't really move all that much because the largest owners of Apple stock are the employees the C-suite executives and you know People like you and I, we own it individually. So not institutions, which you buy and sell every single day. They, and they're the ones that move the market. Um, you know, so you find that they have, they obviously own shares, but a big part of uh, Apple's volume is by individuals. And that's why it's been, uh, remained not as volatile as other stocks. Um, so I guess my point is, is that 
I would invest in one company that you believe in because you buy their product and because you love their product and you have a lot of people that agree with you. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you, you know, like the Oculus, for example, is a public company, uh, even though I believe it's probably owned by Facebook. There are some shares that still trade. Now, the thing is, there are people who like VR headsets, but not everybody likes them and not, and not everybody knows what they are. So if you buy them, you risk having some volatility in your investing and you don't know where they're going to be in the long term. Apple's been around since 1974, something like that. So it's got some good history. It's been around for a long time. It's been public for a long time. It's proven that it has adapted to the future. It is the future as far as uh, computer consumer devices. So um, it's one of those stocks that not only that you love, but we all love it. That's that's kind of what I would do. Okay. Nice. I like that. You know, whew, that's a big one. That's a really big one. And I like that you've brought this in because I know a lot of people will need to ask more questions. Um, but the last thing I wanted to talk about, because I know you mentioned you have some books. And one of the books that I would love to hear about is the one on financial wellness coming out in April. You know, yeah. I would love to hear more about it so that people can also plan ahead. You know, what are the things that they'll be looking out for? What are the major key takeaways? So financial wellness, the thesis of the book is that just because someone is financially fit doesn't mean they're financially well. In other words, people, when they look at success, they look at the appearances. But appearances can be deceiving. Um, we've seen so many different scandals in the last few years. I mean, there's the Enron scandal, um, which probably goes back at least 20 years. But more recently, um, there's Bernie Madoff. Then there's the FTX scandal. You know, um, lots of people lost a lot of money. $3 billion gone, just like that. Um, you know, so there's been a lot of appearances of wealth and success. But even growing up, uh, I, mean, I grew up in a rural town on Long Island that became over time very affluent and filled with a lot of wealthy people and a lot of them drove really nice cars um, but then they wouldn't be around the next year you know their houses would be for sale or foreclosed you know because they were living beyond their means you'd be surprised um, a lot of people who have a lot of money uh, they don't really they live paycheck to paycheck they make a million dollars a year and they live paycheck to paycheck Hmm. Um, I mean, I would never want to embarrass anybody, but I know a family, they make a million dollars a year and their legs get, their legs get cut off on a regular basis. And it's, uh, it's crazy. So the book is not just about, you know, people think that financial literacy is just for people who don't have money, but it's for everyone. And... I think there is a, actually there is a, there is a research, there was a survey that was done that said that the average person doesn't have a thousand dollars in their emergency fund in case of an emergency. And then a larger portion of people don't have $400 in their account in case of emergency. So, and that's across all income brackets. 
it's not just people with a certain level of income. It's across all the income brackets. So it's very surprising um, to hear that. So, but the book, Financial Wellness, really talks about what I call the big, the, the heart of the book. And I start the book off talking about the money battles and the, the battles of the mind and the, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to money. You know, we grew up with these things like, you know, you hear when you're kids, you ask your parents for something and, you, and they say, well, money doesn't grow on trees. You know, so then you have other parents that say, yeah, have whatever you want. You know what I mean? And depending on how you take that as a child, you're either thinking, A, money is not available, it's limited, so I must hoard it. Or I must spend it all so I can enjoy it before it's gone. Um, you know, so you never know what a child is thinking when you're saying things like money is growing on trees. You know, or you say, have whatever you want. You know, people grow up thinking that, oh, money just comes to me. And you would think that that would be an abundant mindset. But there are people who think that money comes to me because I'm entitled to it. So now they feel like they're codependent on somebody. They're not thinking, oh, it's an abundant mindset. I need to go and add value. And then that value will be returned to me. I have to plant this seed and that seed. So either way, there are these words or phrases that are used when it comes to money that we grew up with. And that's what we learn about money. <laughs> and so I talk, so I go through what's called the four uh, money mind battles. You know, there could be spiritual battles happening in the mind when it comes to how we decide money. Um, and let me give you, I guess I'll give you one, like uh, there's complacency versus content. So, there are people when they make money, they celebrate and they tend to not be so disciplined. They tend to think that they've arrived. And so they spend their money. And then when a bad situation hits, um, they don't have any money. They're freaking out. They're depressed. You know, maybe take a job, another job somewhere. Or if they're laid off, they're, they're really stuck. So the complacency, it's a complacency mindset. What they should have is a content mindset. So really the foundation of being content is to have discipline throughout, whether you're in good times or bad times. And so, and the thing is, is that this really, this kind of thing really happens when people, let's say they want to be a lawyer, for example, it's a good example. Let's say someone worked really hard their whole life to be a lawyer. And they became a lawyer and now they're making six figures and now they're just splurging on themselves they're going on dates they're traveling here they're doing this they're buying that car they're buying that house before you know it they're overextended and because they're thinking i've arrived at this place called being a lawyer at this big law firm and now it's now i gotta look the part now i gotta look the part and so you buy all these trappings and then you're stuck you know because you have to go leave law firms or you get fired or something happens, you know, things happen. And next thing you know, you, you're stuck. You're making quarter million dollars a year as a lawyer and now you're overextended. You got to sell your house. You know, if you're married, there might be some issues there. You know, things happen. But instead of saying I arrived at being a lawyer, you say, you know what? 
here I am, I've arrived, but I have to continue saving and doing the things that I used to do. You know, I don't have to have the house right away. I don't have to have the car right away. I can just live in this apartment and I can save this amount and I can invest it here. So, and that has to be in place before you get there, not when you get there. Because uh, we see that with athletes. Athletes, they come with this huge financial windfall and now they're ready to take their millions and buy all these things, all these trappings. Um, and, and then before you know it, there's an injury. Uh, I mean, not just athletes. I shouldn't just single them out. But, you know, recording artists, actors, you know, they get the private jet right away. And it's like, you know, why? You know, so um, one of the, so I don't, I, don't really, I don't really share names in the book, but I have worked with entertainers and athletes. And, um, and I've worked with ones that are really good with money and I've worked with those who are not so great with money um, and the ones that are really good with money don't spend anything <laughs> don't spend anything you know mm. because they when when they had nothing they weren't spending anything and now they have money they don't spend anything, <laughs> anything. That's and a lot of the stuff they get for free that's the other thing so you know they're like well, well I'm a big star now so you should just give it to me for free <laughs> you know <laughs> But those who are big stars say, "Oh, I can pay for this. I can pay for that." You know, but uh, but the the ones who are, who are wealthy, um, they're like, "No, you should just give it to me for free." You know, you should give me the Maybach for free. I don't want to pay for that. <laughs> so it, it's, it happens. It really does. It really does. Um, there's one recording artist we all know who drives around in a chauffeured Maybach and. He didn't, you know, that was given to him. You know, he has the means, he can pay for it. But, uh, that's given to him. <laughs> you know? Mm. Because he's in the news. And, you know, all the time. And they, if there's a chance they see him in the Maybach, and they, they know that, you know, that's good for them. Right. You know? And the Maybach costs what? I don't know how much a Maybach costs. 800000 800, I don't know how much it costs. I know it's a six-figure car, but... Um, you, you know, I mean, there's there's no advertising in the world you could spend uh, to get the kind of reach you would get by just giving it to someone who has the reach already. So um, that is so true. So that's what the book talks about these money ba- these money mind battles. I can't wait to get a hold of this book, man. Thank you so much for any time, any time. I'm so excited. You know, if somebody wants to reach out to you, connect with you, or just learn from you, or even, you know, just work with you, what are the options they have available? So you can always reach me on LinkedIn. You can, um, it's Daniel Evans. You can just follow me or connect with me. I connect with pretty much everyone. I do a lot of posting there. You can DM me if you have a question. I do offer paid hourly consultation, depending on your situation. I do financial plans for people. Um, and I, I also manage investing. I have a portfolio that I manage. I'm a macro thematic investor, which means I look at the economy, I look at culture, technology. I see what sort of, how they're driving uh, companies and how they're driving consumers. And I try to invest where they both meet, pretty much, and um, and that's really worked well for for me and for my clients. Uh, 
I've got had really high performance. I've outperformed the S&P 500 index, private equity, hedge funds. I haven't outperformed venture capital, um, you know, but most of the major indices and managers I have outperformed. And that's been really cool. And um, yeah, so those are really the ways to reach out to me. And you can always sign up for the newsletter on my website um, at evansandcompany.com. You can sign up for the newsletter, which I produce every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. You get get an email from me that shows you how to meet any financial goal within five minutes. Beautiful. And the book's coming out in April. Wow. So they'll learn about the book if they sign up for the newsletter. That's really nice. And I love the timeline you said. It gives you enough room to, you know, market it and push it out and really put it out there. So I can't wait for people to get a hold of it and also connect with you. Thank you so much. It's been a blessing and I really appreciate you for being here with us today. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Anytime, Daniel. Till we meet again. All right.